How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. I'm your host today. Welcome back, Ian, as well. Ian, you want to say hi? Hello, everybody, and welcome back. And welcome our two special guest stars today, Nicole Fisher and Taffy, who are descendants of the great Mel Fisher, who went on to find the 1622 Spanish treasure fleet down in Key West, Florida. And uh, thank you for joining us, guys, today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, you're welcome. It's great to be here. Today's the day. Thank you. Today's the day. <laughs> All right. So before we begin, I'd like to remind you guys that you can check our Facebook and our Twitter pages for more information on the episodes, as well as to ask questions and to stay up to date on information concerning the podcast. We also have a community page for more information and interact with the podcast. And we're also in the development of a Patreon-only Discord server for more direct interaction with the podcast. So... Don't forget to show your support for this podcast by donating on Anchor and or our Patreon page, which gives you exclusive access to bonus content or more for as little as $3 a month. And you can also support us by joining the community page and sharing any historical information you come across. And then in the end, we're going to give some shout outs to those of you who have liked and been listening on our social media platforms. And we thank you for the growth that it's already been experiencing. So don't forget to like, follow, comment, and even write a review on any of our platforms. All right. So getting right into it, like I said, today we'll we'll be talking with Nicole and Taffy, who are descendants of uh, Mel Fisher. And uh, you guys have any input before we begin our podcast? Yeah, I just want to say there's still a lot of mystery in history. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We have a pretty broad name. There's a lot to cover that way. All right. If you guys are ready, we'll hop right into it. Let's go for it. All right. So jumping right into our questions, uh, we'll start with our first one for you guys. How do you think your father became interested with the story of the Atocha? And how did you witness his passion? Well, um, my dad, Mel Fisher, you know, he fell in love with the idea of finding treasure when he was a little boy and he read Treasure Island. A, a book by Robert Louis Stevenson, and um, he played with trying to uh, look for buried treasure when he was a kid, growing up in Indiana in the Illinois area, and um, uh, around the Great Lakes, and he would go to the beaches there and dig and go to the lakes and uh, try to create his own dive helmet out of a bucket with a bicycle pump and a hose, <laughs> and um Go down and look down, see what was down there, see if he could find any treasure. Um, and then, you know, it, it just evolved. Uh, he, he was a soldier. He went off to World War II, and when he came back, he was looking for something fun to do. Then he got introduced to the scuba tanks that were just invented by Jacques Cousteau at that time. And um, he loved going underwater. He loved eating fish and catching fish. And he loved doing taking pictures. He he actually developed a whole bunch of his own camera equipment and went underwater and did videos. Um, and 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 so he created his own camera housings because they did not have underwater camera housings at that time. So he built his own uh, for his uh, movie equipment. He had a dive show in California and he. Um, he, he ended up opening a dive shop with my mother um, right after they got married. 
in California in the 1950s. It was the first dive shop in the world. Wow. And uh, they gave scuba lessons and taught people how to dive. They taught probably close to 100,000 people how to scuba dive in the very early uh, time of the sport. And he was always um, trying to keep it exciting. I mean, it was very exciting going underwater and seeing things that other people had never seen and doing videos and pictures of it. Um, of course, he was using a 16 millimeter camera back then with real film, not videotaping or digital stuff. Right. But um, he would start saying, well, let's look for, a, you know, if you want some action in your movies and your, your dive the people who come to your shop who want to go out for a weekend or a day and see neat things underwater, they like to see things that are alive, that are moving. And fish like to hang around shipwrecks. There's a lot of uh, modern day wrecks off the coast of California where their dive shop was. So they would go um, to those areas and, um, you know, look at the fish because they were near the wrecks. And then sometimes um, we would hear stories, historical stories about like this one area called Jade Cove. There was a bunch of jades down there, supposedly. So it was a big mystery. Was there really jade there? Let's all go look for the jade. So he would take a a weekend dive trip up to this area called Jade Cove and take all of the people from the shop up there, uh, all the students who he had taught to dive up there for a weekend. Then he started um, getting into gold dredging And he started going up uh, where the 49ers were in Northern California in the rivers. He would take all kinds of dredging equipment and scuba gear and a couple dozen people from his most recent scuba class. And it would always start out, these things would start out as a hobby, you know, looking for a gambling ship or looking for Jade Cove or going to the rivers looking for gold where the 49ers went. But then they would turn into a business. He would be selling dredging equipment, selling tanks and homemade wetsuits. And um, it was always an adventure. And um, it was probably around 1963 when he got seriously interested in treasure hunting uh, as a potential full-time job. Wow. Yeah. He, um, he had met a, uh, wait. <laughs> he had met, he had, he had, he and my mother had taken a few expeditions down to Silver Shoals looking for a shipwreck called the Concepcion. And they had done a few weekend dives and then they would take a week long trip and they would always take, as I said, other people they had taught to dive on these expeditions with them. And the expeditions just got longer and longer. They went from a day trip to a weekend trip. And then, well, let's take a long weekend, a four-day trip. And then, well, why don't we try a whole week? And then it was, maybe we should do a two-week expedition because it's sure hard to get everything done in a week where we want to go. Then it would turn into a month-long expedition. In the meantime, uh, you know, me and my three brothers were home a lot with our grandparents and our babysitters. <laughs> and, uh, but eventually my mother and father decided uh, they had been approached by a fellow by the name of 
Kip Wagner. Yeah. And Kip Wagner was a carpenter who lived in Vero Beach, Florida, and he had a little cabin on the beach in Sebastian where he liked to go for the weekends and go fishing, beach fishing, and he liked beach combing, looking for driftwood and things like that on the beach. And Kip Wagner started finding these Spanish coins on the beach, all from around the 1700s. And he did some research on them. And uh, he and his buddies decided they had come from a shipwreck that had sunk in 1715, uh, based on their research. And they started snorkeling offshore from where they had were finding these coins on the beach and finding you know things that looked like cannons and and maybe little small clumps of coins all stuck together yeah but they all had he and his buddies who were working this they called themselves um real eight they all had full-time jobs with wives and children and families to feed bills to pay and they couldn't devote themselves full time to this they knew there was some potential and they had been reading in the newspapers about my father and mother and their expeditions uh down in you know up in the um the rivers in north california and down in uh, looking for the concepcion and silver shoals and all around panama my father had a week uh, weekly broadcast tv show in california he was very well known as being like the most successful dive shop business in the United States wow, because he, he really uh, uh. worked hard at it and advertised it. And, um, so, so Kip Wagner contacted my dad and said, um, why don't you fly out here and meet with me and look at what I'm finding and we'll talk about it. So dad went to meet with Kip Wagner. And um, and Kip said, "Well, maybe you and you could get a group of people together. I can't pay you, but you guys come out here and uh, work with us, and we make some kind of a deal." And uh, so that my mom and dad went back to uh, to California and sat down. They just come back from a month long expedition down in um, Silver Banks. And they got home and there was this, they had a ping pong table in the house in California. And there was this big pile of mail on the ping pong table. And they, they sorted the mail into two stacks. One stack was all bills and orders. And the other stack was all checks for equipment that they'd sold and, and you know, orders, checks for orders that they wanted uh, built. And my dad looked at my mom and said, well, honey, you want to open this mound of mail and pay the bills and deposit all the checks? Or would you rather go treasure hunting? She said, let's go treasure hunting. Uh, good option. So that's what <laughs> they did. That was in 1963. And they moved to Florida from California uh, with all of us kids. They had four kids in tow. And they invited six of their best friends and people who they had taught how to scuba dive 
that also had other skills like diesel mechanic or an electronics expert or a coin expert. They invited this group of people that were handpicked by them, by them. And these people all agreed to come to Florida and work for one year without pay. Wow. Wow. That's a dedication and for sure. Yeah. If they didn't, if they did not find a big pile of treasure, they would all go back to California, back to their previous lives, and do whatever they were doing. But if they did find treasure, they would reevaluate at that time. So they came to Florida, and um, they worked for almost an entire year, and they, they weren't super successful. They found, you know, a few pieces of treasure, some silver coins, and occasional piece of gold and the, the conditions were really difficult because although the water in California is pretty clear, it's also very, very cold uh, the, in the Pacific ocean. And when you come to the Atlantic ocean, it, the water is really warm, but in particular areas like right off the coast of Vera beach, it's quite often very bad visibility. Uh, a lot of um, mud particles in the water makes it hard to see. It's almost what you some people can call braille diving. Uh, so, yeah. and this was we got to remember this is before they had handheld metal detectors. Okay, this was a long, long time ago. Wow. So they were really doing a lot of work by just eyeballing it and looking for things. Um, so. My dad was trying to figure out a way to make make it easier to work. So he and one of his partners, who was kind of an en my dad was an engineer at heart. He took engineering in college, and he had a buddy who was a also part an engineer. He's an electronic engineer, and they designed this this thing they called the mailbox because. And you don't see these very often today, but on the street corners, you know, in the old days, they had these mailboxes where if you wanted to mail a letter, you would go and it was shaped like an elbow of macaroni and it was real big. You open a little door and you stick your letter in there and close the door and it drops down in and then the, the post office would come pick up all those, all that mail. But the mailboxes were large, uh, maybe four or six foot uh, tall metal tubes in the shape of a elbow macaroni, but they were giant. And so my dad said, why don't we try to design one of those things that will fit behind the propeller of our boat? And then, because he did notice that on the surface of the water, on the first couple of feet, it seemed like it was always clear. But once you got past descended down diving, past that first couple of feet it got murkier and murkier and darker and he thought well if we can bring that clear water from the surface down to the bottom we'll be able to see better so they designed this tube to fit behind the boat propellers and then they would anchor the boat up with three anchors in a triangle and rev the engines a little bit and all the water that was going through the propellers would push through these tubes and push down to the bottom. 
and bring the clear water from the surface down to the bottom so he could see. And so they went out to test it out when they first built it. And not only did it bring the clear water down to the bottom, but the, the thrust from the water moving through the tubes also dusted away the sand, digging, gently digging a hole in the first time they tried it out, which happened to be the 360th day of their first year. Wow. It uncovered the bottom. My father said, all of a sudden, the bottom was paved with gold coins. Gold doubloons wow. everywhere. Wow. That's awesome. Big round gold coins. And so... They started picking them up. They had a big party that that night and decided they weren't going back to California. <laughs> they were going to stick it out and go treasure hunting. This was a amazing. This and you know this new technology that they built, this mailbox that they dubbed it, was uh, not only did it bring the clear water down, but it also dug a hole and uncovered all the treasure. Wow! And they still use so stuff like that, still, right? Pardon me? They, and they still use the technology like that today, right? Oh, yes. This is one of the most effective uh, pieces of machinery that can be used in excavating for shipwreck artifacts. You can adjust your RPMs to dig gentler. Or if you're working in deeper water or deeper sand, you can adjust it a little higher to dig a little uh, deeper or a little harder. Or if the bottom type is mud as opposed to sand you might have to you know leave it on medium speed for a longer period of time and it's all dependent on the size of your boat the size of your engines the size of your propellers and the water depth you're working in obviously this kind of technology doesn't work well in really deep 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 water but most of the shipwrecks my dad always said are most of the good targets well, this is in the early days. Most of the good targets are in clear, shallow, warm water anyway. At least that's the only ones he wanted to work on. <laughs> he didn't like cold water. He right. didn't like snow. <laughs> uh, he liked warm water. He loved being diving. Um, you know, he, he just, he was in love with the ocean and everything in it. He loved the fish and the corals and sponges, the lobster shipwrecks and the and the histories and the mysteries things people have never seen um i was just looking at one of his earlier shows uh that he had done in the 50s in california and um i'm going to come back to that because i can't remember the name of it but it was really funny to watch it today because the host of the tv show was uh very dramatic and he you know but you know in reality most people have never been underwater and everyone was looking for sea monsters we weren't sure are there monsters down there you know what's down in the depths of the sea you know today we've done so much more exploration but i tell you it's not over there's plenty more exploration to be done there's my father said there was shipwreck probably from his research about every hundred yards from Havana, Cuba to Spain, 
uh, up along the, the coast of, of Florida and up to North Carolina and right. then cutting across to Spain. So many ships have sunk. And our historian, Gene Lyon, who worked with us, he was a family friend um, from church in the early 60s until he died just this past year. And he said, Taffy, it's ship soup out there. <laughs> That's a way to describe it. <laughs> and yeah, for sure. I'm, I mean, it's it's amazing the amount of shipwrecks. And uh, I started getting a grasp over it a little bit. But it's it's amazing. Got, your, the am experience I going your on too got. long? No, no, no good. it's good. I love hearing all the stories. Yeah. That's what that's what we're here for. My daughter is shaking her head. Yes. <laughs> and like, Maybe well, I should let you speak yeah, every once in a while. Do you have something you want to say? Well, you should let him ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you're doing I, good. No, you're it's, doing awesome, mom. It's so it's so fun. Yeah. It's so fun to hear the stories. Yeah, I love the stories. That's what that's yeah. what we're all about. Yeah. Um, I, I have a I, I have a question for you guys. Um. So you mentioned how much of an entrepreneur he was, and how how uh, many how many cool uh, shipwrecks and finds he discovered. Um, but what was it like um, growing under Mel Fisher, and um, how did you react to these finds and these discoveries? Um. Well, the in um. Hold on a second. I'm gonna relocate. Yeah, it's all good. I hope this doesn't create noise because I want to go outside for a second. And it's a little windy. So tell me if there's any audio difficulty. It seems good on our end. Yeah, it's, there's no, nothing so far. Hold on. You want to readjust or are you good? We're good. Yeah, we're, we're good. We're good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, growing up, the daughter of Mel Fisher, um, you know, I was only two years old when we moved from California to Florida. And the first seven years, when my parents worked on the 1715 shipwrecks very successfully, I didn't know that my dad and my mother were any different from any other parents with the exception of, you know, when I went to show and tell in first and second grade, I was <laughs> a pottery shard or sometimes even a piece of eight that they found wow. on the shipwreck. Quite a bit more to show. I bet you're the and coolest it, kid in I kindergarten. Did notice, I did notice it was different from what the other kids were bringing. <laughs> <laughs> but because most of them brought a favorite toy or sometimes a pet and but I liked those things too, you know? So I didn't really feel like it was too different. Then I thought everybody was like my parents. I didn't know they were the only ones doing it. Um, you know, later on it became more apparent. Um, when I remember going to fifth, to uh, show and tell in fifth grade in Key West when we first moved down there and taking a gold coin and the teacher freaked out. She said, you can't have something that valuable in the school. And I said, it's just a gold coin, you know, from a shipwreck. And uh, so, um, 
It was, it was a, my parents had, like my, they were always doing promotions for dive gear and things like that. And, and I did notice that I never saw any of my other friends' parents doing those kinds of things. Um, whenever I was in elementary school and it was a weekend, we would go down to the beach with a babysitter and watch our parents working off the boat or else we would go out with them on the boat and watch them work because they, they worked seven days a week, you know what, because you're very dependent on the weather windows here, uh, particularly on the 1715 fleet on the East coast of Florida. Right. Um, you really only have about a hundred days of really good weather to search because the rest of the year it's too rough and too murky to work at all. For the most part, I mean, there's occasional good weather windows, but to keep the whole operation going is very expensive and, you know, you have to work within the weather windows. So if it was calm enough to have the boot at sea, they had the boot at sea. Our entire entire summer vacations were spent uh, on the boats. And anytime we went on a vacation anywhere, my dad would look for treasure. Wow. It didn't matter if you were in a ghost town <laughs> or a college town. It didn't matter. There was some mystery, some treasure somewhere. And, you know, that was just his, it was his hobby. That's what he did. He loved history. He loved mysteries. And he wanted to go look for more, no matter where he was, land or sea, didn't matter. Wow, that's what we're all about. <laughs> so, so with that influence, did you uh, did you ever yourself become interested in your father's work and what he well, ended up doing? Well, let's hear let's hear from Nicole. What was it like from her perspective, yeah. growing up under Mel Fisher? Do you have any cool stories? Um. Well, I was only one years old when they found the mother load in 1985. <laughs> um. And, you know, I really didn't know, just like my mom, like, I didn't know that my grandparents were any different, um, even even though he was even way more well-known and famous from the Atocha find, which is what really put treasure hunting industry and the name of Mel Fisher on the map, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, you know, I just kind of grew up not knowing, not really thinking, you know, it was anything different than anybody else. Until probably, yeah, fifth or sixth grade, I, you know, my friends started asking me, what's the Atocha? Like, um, and just because, you know, we were always doing these six expeditions too. We were always going on vacations and researching treasures and do, you know, we were also doing some adventures that other families and my friends definitely were not doing. And I didn't know that much about it. Like, I'm almost embarrassed to say, <laughs> but I started saying, Mom, can you teach me about the Atocha and, like, the coins and stuff? Because I'm, my friends are starting to ask me all these questions, and I don't know the answers. <laughs> so, you know, she explained to me that, you know, she kind of um, sheltered my older brother, Josh, and I. Because when the Atocha was found, you know, it was um, it made international news. And, you know, she was told to sort of protect her family. Uh, just in case we were kidnapped or, you know, people asked for ransom or anything like that because it was, it was oh such big geez. worldwide news. 
So she just never really made a big deal about it, never talked about it to us a lot. Because um, she probably didn't want us going into school and bragging about it to our friends. So it was just, you know, um, it wasn't it wasn't really known about to me even until I was like a teenager. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and, you know, and then, you know, he passed away when I was like 14 years old. Um, but we lived down in Key West till I was about five and then we moved up here. So there was a little bit of separation from my grandparents for the early you know, years of my life. But we always visited down there a lot. I mean, I, I would say I was very, especially very, very close with my grandmother. Um, you know, I remember my grandpa being in the pool with me a lot, putting a mask on me, showing me how to use a mask and snorkel. You know, he was just a super fun guy. Um, very charismatic. He was like, every time he would walk in the room, all of us kids would tackle his leg and he would reach in his pockets and pull out all of his change and throw it all over the floor. And then we all became little miniature treasure hunters. <laughs> and I think you know, that was his way of teaching us grandkids, you know, this is what's the fun in life. And this is, you know, uh, it was just fun. He was so cool. He was a lot of fun and you know he, he he loved playing games and he would um teach us all how to play games he loved the game of hearts and he was always trying to take all the hearts i don't know if anyone's familiar with that game but you're trying not to get hearts unless you can get them all and he always tried to get them all <laughs> where everybody else was always trying to get rid of theirs and whenever he would win a lot and he would wow. just tell us, no, 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 no. You guys don't get the idea of this game. He <laughs> <laughs> was just fun. He was super cool. That's awesome. And I'm sure it's yeah. a different experience uh, with, with you guys uh, and uh, how you met him or um, how, how you got to know him in different aspects. Yeah, I think as time goes on, you know, your perceptions change. Like, even what Nicole was talking about, he did the same thing with me and my brothers when we were little. He'd come home every day, and we would tackle his legs, and he would throw his change, and we had to yell, heads or tails. Then some of it, we'd have to look at all the coins, and he always had a pocket full of coins, mm -hmm. um, American coins. And one of us would get the heads and one of us would get the tails. And we'd go out to eat in a restaurant and with the kids and grandkids. And he would take all of his change and throw it under the table. And all the kids would scramble under the table. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we would if we were on vacation, we went to the swimming pool. He'd take all his change and throw it into the swimming pool. So all the kids would dive in to look for the treasure, you know. Um, I'd, I'd be one of those kids. I remember one, there was one time that there was a a real like Spanish coin in his pocket. I don't know if he knew it or not, but it, he, it, it got thrown into the pool. <laughs> oh no. With all this other change and all the great grandkids jumped in and swam and got him. And then I remember when we all came up and we were all looking at our coins and stuff, there was an actual Spanish coin. I can't remember which one of my cousins got it. It wasn't me. But that was really fun. Nicole, do you remember? I think it was 1989 when we first moved from Key West back up to Sebastian, Fort Pierce area. And we were renting a home in Fort Pierce. And that year they had just found a big pile of gold coins on Douglas Beach, 1988. And 
mom and dad were on their way back from a trip to raise money. I think they were out in Las Vegas. And they stopped to visit us at our new house there on Marina Drive. And we had, I had all these gold coins that had just been Sorry for the interruption in the podcast, but I want to put this ad in here for Love's Park Scuba, who are raising money for one Bill Lambert. Bill broke the scuba diving record when he was 98 years young as the oldest diver in the world in Cozumel, Mexico. He broke his record yet again at 99 years on his birthday, September 5th, 2019. This year, he dreams of scuba diving at 100 years old by joining the Love's Park Scuba Dive Team in Bonaire, noted around the world as the shore diving capital of the world. This will be his 100th birthday celebration, meaning anything you can donate will be greatly appreciated. For people who donate $20 or more, they will be awarded a certificate of appreciation. We will need to raise the money before the trip in August so you can participate. Anything you are willing to donate is highly appreciated, and we thank you for your help in making Bill's dream come true. For more information, go to www.lovesparkscuba.com or email at lovesparkscuba at aol.com. Now back to the episode. All right. Sorry for the interruption of the podcast, but uh, Taffy, you can continue with your story. So we took out a checkerboard and grandpa wanted to play checker, teach the kids how to play checkers with gold doubloons and pieces of eight (laughs) instead of using regular checkers. He had gold doubloons. The big eight escudos. That was a lot of fun. That's one of those, you know, looking back on a very unique memory. Yeah, but at the time you thought, well, this is just normal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you probably didn't understand it. At that time, I was in my later 20s and I'm thinking, wow, this is like a, you know, $100,000 checker game. And the, the thing was... I think we actually, because they had just come back from Vegas, we started playing 21, which is something, because he always wanted to teach the kids games. And 21 is a simple enough game for a kid to learn, too. But we were gambling with gold doubloons. And we were like, well, I was like, at this point, I'm like, well, do I get to keep what I win? I <laughs> no, because, you know, we had to turn them all in and do division with, we always had investors and he yeah. gave us a donation to the state of Florida. So. But it was fun playing with them. <laughs> I bet. That's awesome. Wow. So uh, what do you think your favorite memory uh, with your father, grandfather was? You go first, Nicole. I don't remember seeing that question. Do <laughs> <laughs> you want me to go first? Yeah. Want me to go first while you think about it? Yeah. All right. I have a lot of favorite memories. It's really hard to pick just one out. That um, playing 21 with gold balloons was a, a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, I think diving with my mom and dad, especially, you know, whenever I was, uh, very young, like a teenager, my father would hold my hand when we went scuba diving, you know, and I liked that. I felt safe, and it was none of the other kids I knew got to do that. 
I, we never got certified with a C card like most people okay. because our parents were instructors and they taught us to dive. And I felt very comfortable when I was holding his hand. It's kind of like doing an interview with you. I'm always a little nervous right before it starts. But once you get into it, you get comfortable. Scuba diving's like that. Just yeah. you know that you're a little nervous and you're excited. You want to do it. And then once you get started, you get comfortable. And I was always holding his hand until we got to the bottom. And then he would let go of my hand and say, okay, go look over there. He would point. You know, he, of course, you couldn't talk underwater, but he would <laughs> point to pick up that rock or, you know, look over there. And, um, so one of my favorite memories is finding my first piece of bait. Wow. Under wow. A rock on, yeah, on the Atocha site, probably when I was about 12 years old. That's one of my favorite memories. Um, my father and mother both loved throwing parties and dancing and singing. And um, my father had an acoustic instrument collection, you know, drums and tambourines and right. maracas. And whenever Christmas parties were one of his favorites, he would invite everybody over to his house and he would put on some kind of music like, Closest thing your generation might think of it is like Santana. It's not, it's all acoustic and it, he would hand out his instruments and put on a really good, like a Mexican or Spanish music album. We used record albums at these parties and hand out the instruments and everybody can play an acoustic instrument and everybody gets into it and has a lot of fun. He always had some kind of contest at his parties where he gave away a piece of treasure. So everybody wanted to play the game. That's so, awesome. Uh, like a ping pong tournament, you know? Whoever won the ping pong tournament won a two scudo gold coin. You know? Jeez. <laughs> and, yeah. and these parties would last for hours and hours. And, you know, it was, it was potluck food. It wasn't, we never had a lot of money, believe it or not, because. We couldn't use these gold and silver coins to pay our bills, our mortgages, our electric, or they won't take it at the grocery store. Yeah, sadly not. It takes, yeah, it takes a long time to, you know, market these for what they're worth to be able to pay your bills. So we did a lot of hard luck, pot luck, you know, cookouts and parties. It was, but it was always fun. Lots of music, lots of dancing, singing and games that's awesome um yeah you mentioned that uh when you were 12 you found your first gold uh piece of eight or, or i don't know whether it was gold or not but um when i was 12 i was not finding invaluable treasure i think i maybe maybe in video games but <laughs> yeah it was a silver coin and it looked like a burnt cookie it was round about the size of a silver dollar, but it was to, because it had been underwater for 300 years. The silver has a uh, chemical reaction to the salt water, mm -hmm. and it starts to uh, the the sand around the silver sticks to the silver coin, and then it it this coin is starting to tarnish as a natural thing. And it turns black, so it really looks like a burnt cookie. 
in a, a small burnt cookie, like a vanilla wafer that's burnt. And so you got to know what you're looking for. Um, I didn't have a metal detector that day. And, and you know, he, he just kept pointing, go look there, there, there. And, and I was flipping over rocks. And there it was. It was a, it looked like a burnt cookie. It was a silver coin. Wow. But I knew what it was because I had seen my parents bring in piles of these things before. Um, and get it up on the deck. And of course, you know, they got to take it into a conservation lab and put it on electrolysis to clean it up. Back in the 60s, in the olden days, they used to just drop it in a bucket of muriatic acid. And all that stuff would sizzle off and mm -hmm. you could see the marks. And we learned that wasn't the best method. Uh, you know, in uh, a lot of trial and error over the years, there was no book that told you how to conserve shipwreck artifacts because no one had ever found any. No one had ever tried to conserve them. We had to kind of try a lot of different things to find the best methodology to use. Wow. Well. So I guess we can get into uh, some of the modern stuff too and uh, what you guys have been doing. So uh, from everything that your father did with the 1622 fleet and the Atocha, uh, how has all that changed and developed uh, till today? There's a lot of change in the methodologies that you use um, over time. You know, like I said, when they first started, they didn't have metal detectors. And then they also didn't have GPSs. Excuse me. Um, we used to use landmarks and sextants to figure out where we were on the 1715 fleet. And then... When we moved to Key West, they came out with Lorraine Sea Navigation. That was about 1970. And then the technology has changed so drastically from the beginning to now. And it's still constantly developing. Yeah, even faster now than before, I feel. Yeah. Well, would, would I'm going to take, take a one minute break and you guys can talk to Nicole for a couple minutes. Okay. Um, Nicole, yeah. what, what did you mean by um, it's developing even faster now? What new technologies are uh, coming up? Well, now, you know, um, they've got the, like, we have a hybrid autonomous underwater vehicle now. You know, mm -hmm. uh, five or so years ago, there was, you know, that was just starting to be developed, these kinds of um, robotics and uh, deep water vehicles and just all the technology that comes along with that. Okay. Wow. What about yeah, for, for sure. um, diving apparatuses? Do you, um, has there been any new breakthroughs regarding that? You probably know more about that than me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really much of a diver, to be honest. I'm, you know, really manage the museum mostly. Um, 
Well, I, don't, I don't. I don't really dive that much. Well, what about um, with the museum? Are there any new artifacts being um, instituted? I'm sorry. Can you say that again? Have you uh, discovered any new artifacts, and have you any more any new discoveries in the museum? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, we're always discovering new things. You know, every time we make a trip out, um, even if we don't find something. Uh, you know, super extravagant or rare. We're always finding, you know, some of the common artifacts like pottery shards, musket balls, spikes. Um, I think just a week or so ago, we found like um, a rim to like a plate, um, you know, which is pretty common to find that kind of stuff. Uh, and coarse, co coarse coins also, gold and silver. Um, every once in a while, you find something really unique. Um, there was just, and then this is really cool. Sometimes you find something years ago, but it's missing a piece, and then you find that missing piece later, and that just happened. So there was a um, golden pelican that was found, I think about five years ago, maybe. And this is on the 1715 fleet, and it wasn't recovered by our company, but another um, subcontractor. And then just this year, the uh, missing wing to that pelican was found just a couple weeks ago. Wow. wow. So that is very cool. That kind of stuff happens a lot. You know, I know that we've found some gold boxes over the years and then like the lid might be missing and then we find it years later. There was a wow. gold frame. Well, we thought it was a frame that was found back in the eighties. And um, then the centerpiece to that was found and then new research is developed because we've got the two pieces that come together and we say, Oh, well, we thought this was a frame, but it's not, it's actually was, um, it's called a PIX. And it was like what the, you know, Bishop would have been using to hand out the Eucharist wow. uh, during a religious ceremony. Mm -hmm. So, you know, new research is constantly being developed. Like my mom was saying, you know, back then we didn't know the different methods of conservation and that is constantly evolving as is the technology and as is the research for the artifacts that we find. So something that, you know, research back in the eighties when we were finding coins from the Atocha and what did the markings mean? You know, that research was just newly being developed because these coins have never been seen before. And now that they've been being seen and being, being researched by so many different um, historians and archeologists, uh, new research shows, uh, even differences. So new books are coming out all the time. Well, what we thought this marking meant, now we know it means this instead of that. So there's, you know, constant evolution of, of all of this history, and it's a mystery sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So uh, we can kind of build off that. Uh, what projects are you guys currently working on? And uh, what what's the work that goes into maintaining the museum and continuing with all these projects? Well, believe it or not, um, there is, we are still working on the Atocha and the Margarita shipwrecks. You know, when we first founded 1985, we thought, oh, we got the mother load. This is it. And then after about a year and a half or two years of salvaging it and comparing what we found to the manifest. Right. Mm -hmm. I think she. I oh, think did she they froze. freeze? Yeah. 
Uh-oh. Uh, we'll be back in a second. All right. So continuing with your story with uh, Santa Margarita and Tosha and how you guys are still continuing that work. Yeah, we're really amazed when we compare the databases that we've put together of all the finds that we've ever found with what was actually loaded on the ships according to the manifest in the research of all of the, uh, the the high amount of smuggled goods, which is about 150% of what the cargo listed, wow. the estimates of what's still out there is amazing. It's just a really big ocean. And even with all of this technology that we have today, you still have to dig holes to look for all this treasure. It's buried and it's not easy. It's really hard work. It's dangerous work. There's a lot of uh, storms can come out of nowhere. The weather can change quickly. The Atocha and Margarita sites are about 40 miles offshore. So it takes a long time to get out there in our boats. We have big work boats. And we try to stay out for a week or two at a time so that we don't waste fuel going back and forth because fuel is very expensive. And you just got to keep digging holes, digging holes, and digging holes. And uh, when I was growing up, every single day, as long as I remember, my dad would get up every morning and say, today's the day. Yeah. We're that close. I can feel it. I know we're going to find it. Um, I think what a lot of people don't know about my dad is that he was... He had so much faith in faith in himself and faith that the Atocha existed. Um, a lot of people said, oh, it doesn't even exist. It's a story. He made it up. Well, there's research, you know. And then some people would say, oh, it was probably salvaged and uh, no, or pirated. No one knows. And it's not really there. He's just taking investor money. He's a con artist. We dealt with all that. And my dad said, no, you know, he knew the truth in his heart. And he believed in what he was doing. And he persevered and looked. He believed he was going to find it. And he did. It took 17 years. And he had hundreds of people helping him. He didn't do it alone. He had a team of people that people would say, well, what kind of job do you want me to do? And he'd say, you do this. And he'd, they'd go, well, I don't know if I can do that. And he'd say, you can do it. Just try. And he would encourage people. He was really full of encouragement. And he had great faith that it existed. And if we just kept trying every single day, we would find it. And we did. Wow. So you guys are continuing the work with the Atocha and the Santa Margarita, but are you going after any new projects? Yes. Well, we're, we're always looking at new uh, ideas. Um, we are expanding a little bit into some deeper water wrecks, mainly because of um, all of, well, there's a couple reasons. One of the main reasons is because of all the new laws that are coming about where the governments of the world believe they own everything on the bottom of the ocean. Um, right. Particularly mm -hmm. if you're within a, a state water line or inland waters or 
um, the politics are um, very much involved. So we're starting to look at a few wrecks that are outside of the uh, lines of government ownership. Uh, so that takes us into a little bit of deeper water. We're also targeting on wrecks that are uh, mainly merchants, privately owned vessels, not government owned vessels, because uh, sometimes you might find a shipwreck and someone, will, some government will come in and say, hey, that ship belonged to the kingdom of France. You've got to mm -hmm. give us that treasure you found. And then you go to court and fight for 10 years and you may or may not win. Wow. So we're, it, it's, it's, it's an evolving political thing. Um, it's amazing that you can work all your life and spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars and on equipment and searching and hard work. And then a government on the flimsiest of grounds will step in and say, sorry, that's ours. Particularly with the Spanish wrecks, when um, most of the um, Spanish ships were carrying cargo that had been exploited from the South and Central American countries, where they just went in and, in the name of Christianity, uh, they said, we're going to go over here and make all of these heathens into Christians. And while we're there, we're going to enslave them and ask them to give us all of their gold and silver from their mine. And um, it doesn't seem fair that all that stuff ends up on a ship and gets wrecked and you find it. And then the Spanish government says, hey, we own it. You know, if anybody might have had a little bit of ownership, it might have been the South and Central American people who right. it was taken from. So it's a very complicated issue. Um, the fact that most of these wrecks are historic, I mean, let's face it, they are history. They've been underwater for two or three hundred years or more, who knows, depending on the wreck in the area. And the longer they sit there, the more they rot. And I'm kidding you not, between hurricanes and tropical storms and currents and tides and dredging projects, and cable laying projects and fishermen who go out and drag nets and trawl and um, millions, basically mother nature's chemical reaction between salt water. If you're in a salt water area, it depends. There are some freshwater wrecks, but I'm specifically talking about salt water wrecks. These artifacts for the majority of them are continuing to deteriorate and fall apart. The longer they sit on the bottom, the less likelihood there is that they'll ever be found or identifiable. Um, they're, it's called in-situ deterioration. Mm. Now, the government would like you to believe it's called in-situ preservation. But that's not the fact. You can look at wrecks like the Titanic and some of the World War II wrecks like the Monitor that are very famous. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> the Titanic, that's interesting. 
Yeah, I actually know the diver who uh, who was part of that expedition, one of the last to actually dive the Titanic. Um, so you look at these wrecks now compared to when they were fine, and you if you look closely at the photographs they took when they were first found, and the most recent photographs that were taken, you will see that these ships are collapsing on themselves. They're falling apart. Wow. And they're only they're only they're not as old as the Spanish wrecks we're looking at. Mm -hmm. These ships are more modern, and they are falling apart. Now, in the World War II ships, a lot of these ships carried ammunition and artillery and other things that are definitely not good for the ocean environment. If the government wants to take the ships, they should take back the ships that sank in the wars that are deteriorating, causing all this pollution. Yeah, right. They shouldn't be after the wrecks that are full of treasure. They should leave that to the treasure hunter. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Mm. Oh, so we anyway, it's a very complicated issue. Yes, we are looking for new wrecks. We're looking in deeper water. We're looking in international waters. We're looking for merchant ships who were not owned by a certain flag or government. There's hundreds of thousands of shipwrecks out there waiting to be discovered. There's millions and trillions and gazillions of dollars of treasure on board. Definitely worth going for. Oh, yeah. Right. So we've been talking about your uh, father's legacy a lot today, how, how it's impacted a lot of people. Um, but how do you think it's impacted uh, the, the general public? Like, how has he made an impact in uh, archaeological history? Your audio, your audio went out and we could not hear your question. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, my bad. Um, I, I said uh, your father's legacy has uh, been, how do you think your father's legacy has been established today? And how do you think it's impacted uh, history, archaeology? I, I you go, Nicole. Um, I was just going to say, you know, every day being able to, um, you know, you kind of asked me about what it, what it's like to run the museum, you know, every day when I go to work, I really feel like it's such a privilege um, having the job that I have, you know, being able to um, sort of, you know, walk in his past and um, carry on that legacy that he left for all of us. And I meet people almost daily. Um, and if I don't meet them in person, it's a message that they've sent me or something that I see on social media that, you know, um, it's not just me that he left, you know, us that he left a legacy for, not just for the family, but it's for the whole world because so many people have been inspired by his story and just the perseverance that he had and his, just his attitude. I mean, just the today's the day mantra alone inspires people regularly. Like I've, I've heard it be, be mentioned in Ted talks and, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, pastors have used it in their sermons um, it's just, you know, it's constantly, it's a constant reminder of how huge um, of a legacy he really did leave. And, and it's really just such a privilege to 
to be able to honor that every day. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. His, my father is like a folk hero, if you ask me. Um, you know, he's one of those people who had a dream. And he followed his dream. And he, he was kind of like the Pied Piper. He tried to get everyone else to get involved in his dream. And it, and it was fun. It was exciting. It was full of, he always said, fun, romance, and adventure. That's what <laughs> it's all about. And um, he fought the government. It took seven years and 150 hearings. And he won. And he was patriotic. He loved America. He said, this is the only country in the world where you can fight the government and win. Wow. And he, yeah. he was very proud to be an American. He was very quiet about his faith, but he was a faithful man. And he had a lot of perseverance, like Nicole said. He had a friendly, outgoing personality. He encouraged everyone to follow their dreams. And he was just fun to be around. That's awesome. And I think those are really good comments to end on. And uh, if you guys don't have any final comments, uh, I think we'll wrap it up. Well, I just want to encourage you uh, to keep looking into history and keep looking into mysteries and follow your dreams because today's the day. Today's the day. Yeah. All right, so we'll wrap this up, and next week we'll have another episode on a historical subject. And uh, I'm not too sure what our next episode is going to be about, but uh, make sure that you stay tuned and uh, you keep watching our podcast. And uh, as usual, we'd like to give a shout-out to Anchor, our podcasting service. That's been a miracle in making these episodes, as we really couldn't have done it without it. And uh, if you guys have ever wanted to make your own podcast, it's a great service to do that, and I highly recommend it. And then more importantly, I want to give a shout out to those of you as our listeners as we continue to embark on this podcast. And for those of you who have liked and been following the Facebook page, community page, and Twitter as we continue to grow. And uh, I also want to give a shout out to our special guests, uh, Taffy and Nicole. Thank you guys so much for being able to do this with us today. And uh, Malfisher.com, was it? Yes. Uh, we invite you all if you want to get more involved in treasure hunting and finding all the mysteries and the history underwater to join and come to our website at melfisher.com and come visit our museum at uh, 1322 US 1 Sebastian, Florida. We'd love to have you out on our adventure and come find some treasure with us. Awesome. And yeah, I'll make sure to include that link. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, you can also uh, follow us on our social media platforms. So Facebook is Mel Fisher's Treasures. Twitter is, um, I think it's Mel Fisher's Treasures. Treasures. KW? <laughs> <laughs> be sure, to, be like sure to search on your social medias for any Mel Fisher. Uh... <laughs> well, awesome, yeah, guys. Instagram. Yeah, Instagram, for sure. Yeah. Any Florida viewers out there, be sure to check out the museum. Uh, check out the website. Just big shout outs to them. For sure. Jacob, Jacob and Ian, thanks for having us. We hope your podcast goes way over the top. 
Awesome. Thank you so much to you guys as well. And uh, taking time out of your day to be able to do this with us. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank Thank you so much. All right, guys. And uh, yep. With all that being said, thanks guys. And have a nice week. This is Jacob. Ian. And uh, Nicole and Taffy, you want to say bye? Bye, everybody. All right. Today's the day. Follow your dreams. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, guys. Carpe diem. Carpe diem.